Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast with lead pastor Don Headley. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that he gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. I'm so thrilled to be with you today. We're wrapping up a series entitled Together. And I know everything that we just did, taking communion and everything, was this idea of just preparing our hearts for what God wants to do. And uh, this series has been all about deep, intimate relationships, uh, the fact that we desire them, we need them. And uh, when, I, when I say deep, intimate relationships, I'm not talking about sexually intimate. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about int- uh, intimate in the fact that you are known and you know. Like there's just people in that inner circle of yours who love you, care for you, uh, even if you're messed up. They forgive you, they, they grow with you, they walk with you in life. And so these are those relationships that we've been talking about. So I want to encourage you, grab the Word of God, head over to Acts chapter 9. This is going to be our first stop for the morning, Acts chapter 9, 26 and 27. Uh, this series, I just want to make sure that we're aware of this as we dive into this today. If you haven't been with us, is all about what we are talking about is our up relationship and our in relationships. And again, here at Mountain View Fellowship, we talk about up relationship with God, in relationship with other believers, and then out relationship with a world around us that, that does not believe. And so this um, series has been all about the people sitting next to you, the people all around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, your spouse if they're a believer, uh, friends, coworkers, classmates, anyone that confesses Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We've been talking about those in relationships Uh, godly marriages and just godly friendships. And uh, if you haven't been here, I just want to catch you up real quick. What we've learned so far is that since God is in community, so are we. And we got that out of Genesis because it said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. And what God is referring to in that passage is the Trinity. He is three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is in perfect communion within himself. And then it says that he creates us in his image. And the idea is he created us in his image for community with him and with each other forever. That's the way we were designed, and it's one of the reasons why we have this ache in our lives when we don't have those types of relationships, because we were designed for it. We were created from the beginning of time for these types of relationships. So what happened? Sin entered into the picture, and it broke that original design. And so now, because of sin, uh, because of death, we have these, these fractured, broken uh, lives and, and fractured, broken relationships. And, and even in the midst of that, us being sinful, trying to, to become more like Christ every day, trying to have God-honoring relationships, we actually have an enemy working against us as well. So we have Satan, who is doing everything that he can to drive a wedge between you and God and you and the people around you, between you and your spouse, you and your parents, you and your kids, your neighbors, uh, your coworkers, if they believe in Christ, he's trying to drive a wedge between all of those relationships. And so they are under attack. And in week number one, we started to open up this idea of relationships, uh, godly relationships, by um, 
approaching it from uh, how do you approach your relationships. What we found out from the get-go is we're usually going down the wrong path because when we approach our relationships, we approach it incorrectly. And what we did in that first week is we likened it to consumption versus covenant. You were designed in the image of God for covenant relationship. And yet in that first week, many of us had to admit that the majority of the time we view all of our relationships through the lens of consumerism. What can I get out of this? Do you add value to my life? Do you bring me joy? And if not, then I'm gonna walk away from it. But yet we were designed for covenant relationships. And we gave you a litmus test on, on how to determine whether you're actually viewing your relationships through a consumeristic view or from a standpoint of covenant. And it was by asking this question, is it you adjust to me or is it we adjust to him? And like I said, unfortunately, many of us had to say we fell into the first one. We expect people to adjust to us instead of us adjusting to him. And, and what makes a good godly in relationship is when you and somebody else use we adjust to him. We know what the word says. We know how Jesus taught us how to live our lives, and we're doing that together. And when we mess it up, we hold each other accountable, and we love each other through that, and we just keep going. We keep fostering that relationship um, the following week, we talked about the greatest obstacle for these deep, intimate relationships, and it was vulnerability. We said the problem is that we are not vulnerable at all. And what it does, it leads us down this path where we end up in a place where we are really, really lonely because we don't have any deep relationships. We have nothing but shallow relationships. And the thought thread that I gave you in that week that we kind of walked along, we dove into each part of this thought thread was this, the lack of vulnerability leads to a facade, which leads to a fear of being found out, which leads to isolation and loneliness. And unfortunately, in that week, I think many of us had to say that's exactly where we were at. And unfortunately, it's where the world is at around us. Uh, because we think we have to be a certain way. We have to act a certain way. We project this image of strength and this facade. And because of that, uh, we're afraid that we're going to be found out. People are going to realize that we're not who we project to be or who we say that we are. And so that causes us to withdraw, to, to fall into isolation, that fear of being found out. And, and because of that, we find ourselves in a place where we are just isolated and lonely. And what we taught you in that week is vulnerability is the way out of this. But that's the one thing that we can't allow ourselves to do, is to be vulnerable with one another. But I encouraged you because there was this cycle that we taught you. It's incredible how God has designed it, that the deeper a relationship goes, when you begin to foster a relationship and it goes a little bit deeper, you can open up and be a little bit more vulnerable. And when you open up and be a little bit more vulnerable, the relationship goes deeper. And when it goes deeper, you can be more vulnerable and it goes deeper. And it's the cycle that creates these deep, intimate relationships with the people around you. And then last week, we talked about the second, I think the second greatest obstacle that we have for forming these deep, deep relationships. And it's this, this mindset of individualism. It's all about me. It's about my desires, my happiness. And when we approach relationships like that, we abuse them. And the problem with individualism is it becomes all about me and it pits me against God because I'm not ready to give up my desire and my will. I, I don't want to follow his. I want my own things. And that's what individualism crosses all these lines. It not only pits me against God, but it pits me against you and it pits you against me as well because we're trying to use each other to get what we want, to, be, to chase happiness or whatever we desire. And individualism 
guts any kind of deep relationship that we have. We said the, the cure to individualism is the opposite of individualism, which is community. And we found out last week that that is a hard one to do because community requires love and self-sacrifice. And I challenge you when you left last week to go out to look for opportunities every day to sacrifice yourself to show others that you love them. I hope that you were practicing that last week and that you saw some great things come out of that. Now today, uh, we're going to wrap it up by talking about something. I'm just going to be honest with you up front, okay? I'm just going to tell you, this is one of my pet peeves. Like it just gets under my crawl. It's just one of those things. It just drives me crazy. And it's the subject of compatibility. Compatibility. Um, I, I hate this. It just drives me nuts. But yet we have bought into this hook, line, and sinker. Like it is all about compatibility. And maybe you've fallen into this yourself. You know, you get into a friendship or maybe boyfriend, girlfriend, or you're even thinking marriage, and you took a compatibility test to see if you guys were compatible or not. Or you did the zodiac signs, you know, I hope he's an Aquarius because I'm a Gemini, right? And like that's going to fix everything. And the problem with that is it has nothing to do with who, we're, who we are and who we're becoming, right? It has nothing to do with our actions. It has to do with who are you and who am I and are we compatible? And we don't have to change anything. And the problem with that is that when things go bad, we have an out. We have something else to blame. But we just weren't compatible. We don't have to take responsibility for a failed relationship because it just came down to the fact that we were just different, we didn't have to grow, we didn't have to adjust, and we definitely didn't have to come together to adjust to him. Compatibility, I'll just tell you up front, I reject the idea of compatibility as the end-all factor for whether a relationship is going to make it or not. I just reject it. Now, I will acknowledge that we do have things like common likes, common interests, we have same taste, things like that, that actually help us connect at a very early stage. But that's as far as that goes. Those are not indicators as to whether a relationship is going to, to survive the test of time or not, or survive a disagreement or, or trouble or tribulation. That this idea of compatibility, that there's this one person out there that's just perfect, just you complete me, right? Stupid crazy. Actually, I'm, I'm being very careful what I said because this is what I want to share with you, all right? I want you to get this. So this is the way I said it. Compatibility is a farce. Um, there was other words I wanted to use, but I'm like, you can't use this in church. So, so farce is what you got, all right? Compatibility is a farce. It's a farce to the extent that we use it today in our, in our culture. Uh, no other concept, I think, has ever done more damage or hindered more deep relationships than this idea of compatibility. Because we have an out. We just have something to blame it on. We don't have to do any work. It's all about, well, I guess we just didn't line up. And actually, this approach is flawed from the very beginning. It's, it fills us with pressure, and, and it takes us down the wrong path from the very beginning. We use incompatibility as an excuse not to love people, not to extend the grace that we've been extended. We use incompatibility um, as an excuse to separate from someone, to divide friendships. We even use it in marriages. Incompatibility is being used as an excuse just to divide. It, it plays out in our culture, though. We call it something different in our culture. It's called cancel culture. Ever notice that? You don't look like I do, dress like I do, think the same way, say the same things. 
uh, then I can just walk away from you. I can reject you and cancel you. Uh, I heard somebody call cancel culture something better, which I think is more appropriate. It's called cancer culture. Because once it takes root, it destroys and kills. That's what it is. That, that's our culture today. But see, Christianity should be countercultural. We shouldn't be doing what the society teaches us to do. We should be doing what Jesus taught us in the scriptures. Uh, and I'll just talk uh, on behalf of the pastors here at the church, the number of people that we've sat down with couples and, and we've counseled them and, and we believe and we've seen God do amazing things and there's stories all across this room of God redeeming and restoring and healing and we'll sit down and we'll counsel some couple for a long time only to get to the end and they're like, no, we're done. And we're like, why? Why are you done? And they want to cite incompatibility as the reason. That's within a church context. It drives us crazy. Can I just say, we need to grow up. We need to throw off some childish things and we need to lean into our relationships because every one of them, as you're going to find out, are difficult. They're messy. It's just the way it is. But we have a God that is bigger than that. We have a God that can heal and redeem and restore. So let me just ask this question. So with all that being said, as, as believers, we're talking about in relationships in here, do Christian relationships have problems? Yes or no? Yeah, you better believe it. Yeah, we have problems. And I don't want to show this to you, but I, here's, here's what I think we, we do wrong. It's our response to those issues where we get way off track. And I want to show this to you through the life of two very, very godly men in Scripture. One of them, his name is Saul. The other one is named Barnabas. And uh, they have a, a very unlikely friendship. It's very interesting. Saul is a zealot for the Jewish faith. He actually is in the business of killing Christians. That's his job. So he goes to the temple. He pulls paperwork. He goes out. He hunts down Christians and has them killed because they are not going along with the Jewish faith and, and they're, uh, they're heretics. And so this is what he does for a living. And what's interesting is Saul is on one of these trips. He's going down this road to Damascus and Jesus meets him on the road. And again, we don't have time to get into the whole story. It's an amazing story. God meets him, blinds him on the road. He's like, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, who are you? And he's like, Jesus. And, and it's this amazing conversion. In this moment, Saul turns his life over to Jesus. And they take him back into Jerusalem. And when he gets back into Jerusalem, there's an issue. I want you to see this. Acts chapter 9, verse 26, it says, When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. I wonder why, right? He's been killing them. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. And then enters this amazing guy by the name of Barnabas. And Barnabas is going to be the one that's going to spearhead Saul coming into the faith and, and having his name changed to Paul and all these great things. You're going to see this apostle come out of this. He's going to write the majority of our New Testament, all of this stuff. But it was Barnabas that stepped in on his behalf in verse 27. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. And the result of all this, if you fast forward, is this amazing, close, godly friendship between these two men, these two men of God. And they have a deep, intimate relationship. They travel together. They preach the word. They plant churches. They, they go on an entire missionary journey together, and they're going all over. And this is back before airfare, right? Back before uh, cars. I mean, this is, this is long journey. 
um, spending day and night together. These two men knew each other very, very well and had a great friendship. And in the middle of this first missionary journey where they're going out and they're just preaching at all these different synagogues and, and planting churches and getting these groups of believers kind of on the right track, sharing with them what Jesus had taught them, um, there's a guy by the name of John Mark who's with them. And it's actually Barnabas's cousin. He's gone along just to assist, just to be part of this trip. And by the time you get to Acts 13, in the middle of this journey, John Paul turns and says, I got to go home. I have to go back to Jerusalem. And he leaves them. And what I find fascinating is we're not told the reason. Like we're, not, we're never given a reason why John Mark uh, leaves them. But he does, and it might have been a family emergency. We, we just don't know, and so they just leave that open-ended in Scripture for you to figure out. But that's not the point of the whole thing. The point is, John Mark has to go back to Jerusalem. And it's not a problem until later on. Paul and Barnabas come back together again. They're excited about what's going on. They're getting ready to plan a second missionary journey. And this is what's said here in Acts chapter 15. After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord and see how the new believers are doing. Great idea. Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Their disagreement was so what? Was so what? Sharp. I want you to get this. Disagreement was so sharp that they, they separated. Barnabas took John Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. And you go on to read that Paul chose another man by the name of Silas, and he went to Syria. They went in two different directions. They had a sharp disagreement. And the Bible doesn't tell us there wasn't sin involved. And I want you to know this up front. This isn't over a theological issue like Jesus is the son of God. No, he's not. That's not what this was about. It was about, should we take John Mark? And when you and I, we enter into a situation like this and you and I have a sharp disagreement, the mistake that we make is we take it personal. And, and I can prove that. You want me to prove it? Because I just read that passage and almost every one of us in this room, we thought to ourselves, huh, I wonder who's right. Was it, was it Paul or was it Barnabas? And over the years, I've studied this passage and I've read the entire story and I, and I kind of felt how this, this relationship has turned out. And, and I go back and I keep looking at this and I can tell you that now, looking back on it, if, if I went back to uh, this time, you know, in the first century, and I was a, a lawyer, that I could defend either one of them. Like, like, I actually could argue both sides because I see where Paul's coming from. Paul, remember, he's a zealot. That was, he was all passionate. He's that type of dude. Well, he's like, no, no, no. We're going out there to plant churches. We need somebody who's dependable. And the word that's used there is deserted. Like, he deserted us. Well, but he had this thing going on. He had to come back to I don't care. This work is too important. We need somebody who's reliable. And then you have Barnabas, who is called the encourager in Scripture. Like, he's the kind of guy that, that would go out of his way to somebody like Saul, who's blind and trying to get in with the, uh, the disciples, and, and he'll go, hey, um, guys, he's for real. His conversion was real. Give him a chance, right? That's the type of person he is. Well, he's arguing the point, wait a minute. John Mark left for whatever reason. We need to give him a second chance. 
I, I believe in him. I know he can do better this time. Just give him another shot. And you can argue both of those sides without a problem. Scripture does not say that one man or the other is wrong. Never does. It just says they went two different directions. And you know what's interesting about it? Is um, they handled it correctly. Because if you know anything about church history, is they went off in two different directions. It's almost like God did twice as much because of it. He used it to glorify his name. Do you know what Paul and Barnabas didn't do? They didn't split a church over it. Um, they didn't um, backstab each other, go around behind each other's back and gossip. They didn't go to the other disciples and go, can you believe him? Why don't you come on my side, right? He's wrong. They didn't do that at all. They, did, they didn't go on social and try to tear down the other's reputation. They didn't hold a grudge. And I can prove it. I'll show that to you here in just a second. They handled it correctly because they didn't take it personal. Now, I'll tell you, between you and me, there will always be times when we're going to disagree in matters. Now, again, I'm not talking about big theological issues. I'm talking about just differences, maybe preferences and stuff. We're going to have differences. But the important thing in that moment is to make sure that we keep focused on the will of God and, and on the work of Christ. If we do that, we're going to be okay. Uh, is it going to be you adjust to me, or is it going to be we adjust to him? And if we adjust to him, then we handle it in a godly way, then great things are going to happen because of that. Uh, Paul didn't hold a grudge because years later, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he would write this. Only Luke is with me. Bring who? Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. Isn't that great? He argued against him. It was so sharp, he went in a different direction. But now, years later, he's like, you know what? Bring him. Um, he's seen what he can be. And even Paul commends John Mark in Colossians chapter 4. It says, Aristarchus, who was in prison with me, sends you his greetings, and so does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. As you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. He's even saying, look, if he comes your way, man, he's useful. Listen to him, right? Bring him in. He's promoting Mark. Um, it, it's incredible what happens when you handle it correctly. Uh, let, me, let me ask the question again. Will we have problems in Christian relationships? Everyone agree? Yes, we do. Absolutely. Why? Because we're sinful and broken people, right? We're in a messed up world, messy relationships. We're trying to do the best that we can. We're trying to become more like Christ every day. But you know what that implies? That we're not there yet. And we won't get there until the day we arrive and go, hey, I know you, right? Um, so until then, we're going to be navigating these messy relationships, and we're going to be messing some things up. But when we handle it in a very godly way, it will always lead to deeper relationships. Problems and relationships are not an excuse to abandon them. They're an opportunity for us to lean into them and let the Holy Spirit do what only the Holy Spirit can do. You and I, when it comes to relationships, especially, uh, especially with brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to love each other. We're called to judge favorably. We're, we're called to extend grace to one another, the same grace that was extended to us. Um, if we want to stick with this theme of compatibility, right, as the world puts it, uh, do you know what makes us incompatible with each other? It's one word. It's, it's not your personality profile. It's not zodiac signs, all right? It has nothing to do with that. You know what it is? The thing that makes us incompatible is sin. Sin makes us incompatible with God and with each other. Our in relationships. And this is what we need to be on guard against. 
Because we are sinful people. And we get full of ourselves and we say things we shouldn't. We take offense. We take things personal. Um, we, we sin against each other. The truth is no one in this room is compatible with anybody else the way the world defines it. Um, we are sinners trying to become more like Christ every day, which means we're going to make problems. We're going to have problems. We're going we're to sin against one another. But here's what's amazing. If we handle it correctly, if we don't do you adjust to me, but we do we adjust to him, and we look at the scriptures and go, I really screwed that up. And we go to the other person and we say, hey, look, I'm sorry. I messed it up. I sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? We have lost that in the church. Can I just say that? And we need to bring that back. We need to bring it back in our relationships. We need to bring it back in the church. And please, Lord, help us bring it back in our marriages. Because we need it. I've sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? And mean it. Knowing that our goal is to adjust to him. Both of us adjusting to him. Um, sin shreds even the most promising friendships that we can, we can foster. Sin gets in the, prob- uh, in the middle of it and causes all kinds of problems. It makes us incompatible with God and with each other. It's the, rela- it's the reason most of our relationships break up. It's, re- it's the reason marriages fall apart. is because of sin. Because God has a better plan for us, and we follow his plan. He's a God of healing. He's a God of redemption. He's a God of restoration. And we need God to enter into our relationships. Desperately need him to enter in. Because we need his love and his forgiveness and his grace in order to be able to do this. Because our goal comes out of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul was writing, the same Paul was writing years later to a church in Ephesus. And a church full, uh, full of people that were sinners that were trying to become more like Christ. A, a church very much like this one. And this is what he had to say. And I think this might be even more relevant today than it's ever been. Ephesians chapter 4. Says, uh, and listen to the verbiage he uses here. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. That is our goal as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a church full of believers. This is our goal, to foster those kinds of relationships. And if you really, really want to have godly relationships, I think as I read through just these few verses here, there's a couple of themes that pop out to me that we need to take seriously. And here's, here's a, a key to having a godly relationship. You really, you're ready? You're not going to like this, I promise you. We need to humble ourselves. We need a large dose of God's humility. That's what we need. Because if we're honest, pride is what causes most of the problems in our relationships. Did you hear the verbiage that Paul used? A prisoner for serving the Lord. Um, he, he says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient. He, he says, you make allowances for each other's faults in love. Now, let me ask you, is that you adjust to me or is that we adjust to him? We adjust to him. Um, there is more we than me in our journey with Christ. 
It's how God has designed it. We're in community with each other. We're in relationship. And as we pursue Christ together, we're going to get better. But we have to have a large dose of humility. We have to continually humble ourselves. Not only that, but the other thing I saw as, as Paul was writing this is not only do we need humility, but I think we need to pursue unity as well. Did you hear it in that passage? It says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. He goes on to say, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and living through all. Do you hear unity in that? It's all about unity within the body of Christ. And actually, Jesus himself, just before he went to the cross, he went into the garden and he prayed. And in that moment, do you know what he prayed for? For you and me? He prayed for the disciples that were there and the ones that would come after, which means you and me. And he prayed that we would have unity. The same unity, get this, that he experienced with the Father. God, may they be one as you and I are one. Think about the implications of that. I I hate to say this, but I don't know if I can name a church that does that well. We got to do better. That oneness is how the world is going to see Jesus in our relationships. They'll know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. Not because of all the infighting, how you argue, how you beat each other down, how you gossip about each other, right? We can do better. I've been reading through a lot of the Old Testament lately, and it just struck me here recently how often God is speaking to us, and he says, my people, if my people, when my people, my people, my people, my people, and it hit me the other day that his people probably should reflect him. That's usually when he's making that statement. He's saying, this is what I want you to do, or he's saying, you messed it up. We should probably reflect him. It goes all the way through the Bible like that. And then you get to the book of Revelation, and in that moment it says that, that God is calling, he's drawing all nations to himself, is what he's doing. I say that to say this. We're going to have brothers and sisters that are going to be different. They're going to do things differently. We're going to disagree on some stuff. And how we handle that is either going to show people who Christ is or it's going to turn them away. Um, the reason this is so important is because you guys know we're getting ready to launch a Spanish-speaking ministry here. And in my head, my, as I think through this, I'm going a year from now, we could have an entire church full of people that speak a whole different language than you and me, that come from a whole different culture than you and me. And you know what? That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Because God loves them every bit as much as he loves you. This is what he desires. May we realize that every relationship that God has blessed us with in our lives represents an eternal soul. May we follow Jesus' example by placing a high priority on every one of those relationships. And may God grant us his grace and his love as we humble ourselves before him and foster those relationships, even the ones that are different and the ones that are difficult. I pray that the world would see Jesus in us through our relationship. Let me pray for that.
Heavenly Father, we come to you right now as your people. Lord, but we also confess in this moment that we're flawed and we're messed up. And Lord, we sin. We sin against you and we sin against each other. Lord, we ask for forgiveness. I pray that today was a, just a day of setting the table as we took communion, as we were reminded of your sacrifice for us and your love. And, and Lord, I pray that that would just con- convict us, but also encourage us as we go out in the world. May we do a better job this week of fostering relationships, especially among brothers and sisters. May we, even if we have sharp disagreements, may we respond in a way that is God-honoring. God, we just pray that all of this continues to mold and shape us. Use it to make a church that looks like you, that speaks like you, that loves like you. God, we just want to be a part of that. And we pray that you would receive all the glory and honor. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said. Amen.